Good afternoon. This is Jeffrey Meldon from Meldon Law welcoming you to a great edition of Meldon Law and Friends. We have a special guest today to start the show, Alex Marvez, who is the NFL announcer for the Sirius XM NFL channel. And we're going to get to Alex in just a few minutes. There's a few announcements I want to make. Um, we are broadcasting today from the Coaches Podcast Room at Spurrier's Gridiron Grill at Celebration Point, as we always do, and uh, it's really a rare privilege. Uh, for those of you that have been listening uh, over the last 12 months, this is a big edition because it's our 52nd edition, so we have made the one-year mark on Meldon Law and Friends podcast. It's pretty cool, Alex. Right? No, it is, and incredible mm-hmm. stuff, and the, the plethora of guests that you have, and, and the, you know the ability to service uh, all of those folks connected to Meldon Law and talk about all the great things you're involved with in the Gainesville, Ocala community, let alone the state of Florida. Meldon Law is everywhere. Kudos to you for getting that done. And that's why we have Alex on more than once every four months, <laughs> because he can speak so highly of uh, <laughs> Meldon Law. So thank you very much for the uh, compliment. Uh, also, you can watch uh, and listen to us on Facebook, YouTube, and 39 other audio platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Overcast. We're, we're uh, all over the place. So if you uh, want to um, share uh, and like and listen, go to Facebook. Uh, watch our podcast. We're really excited uh, that we've had so many listeners and uh, viewers uh, to the podcast. So uh, please uh, keep keep the word out there. Uh, now we're taking questions live today. Uh, so any comments, questions, go to Facebook Live and simply let us know in the comment section uh, what's going on. A uh, couple things this week. Uh, Spurs Gridiron Grill on Saturday night is having a really big event for the Real Rosewood Foundation. The uh, president is Lizzie Jenkins, and it's her 83rd birthday. Uh, $50 donation. It includes uh, uh, hors d'oeuvres and some other things. So please uh, support uh, the Real Rosewood Foundation uh, it's a, it was, there was a great movie in the, uh, I think 1998, uh, that was done about, uh, the massacre at, uh, Rosewood just outside of Gainesville in Levy County. And, uh, it's a story that needs to be retold so we don't forget. Uh, Lizzie Jenkins is an amazing lady. We've had her on our, uh, podcast before. We really uh, uh, enjoy her, and it's going to be a great party. Anybody uh, that knows Lizzie knows that uh, she's going to, you know, uh, throw a terrific birthday bash, and uh, she's going to be taking over the entire Visors Lounge on the top of Spurrier's Gridiron Grill. So that's going to be very, very cool. Uh, Other things going on, tomorrow, uh, the 20th of October, is Tom Petty's uh, birthday. It would be. It would have been his 71st birthday, and uh, they're releasing a a, video, a a movie that was made about the production of the uh, seminal album Wildflowers. Uh, so that's going to be at the Hippodrome Theater and uh, Regal Cinema. And uh, check it out. See if you can get seats to get in. 
Uh, it's going to be amazing. Uh, and uh, Heartwood is doing a, uh, it's an, uh, kind of an unofficial celebration uh, for Tom Petty Friday and Saturday night out at uh, Heartwood. So uh, check it out. Uh, there's a lot going on, and uh, we uh, invite you to uh, join all of the activities. Uh, Alex, uh, welcome again to uh, Meldon Law and Friends. We love having our friend Alex Marvez here, and especially in the NFL <laughs> season because uh, there's so much going on. And uh, we were just talking about uh, you know the game last night, and uh, I mean. That was a really a fun game, you know. Uh, you know, Buffalo is you know kind of uh, everybody's talking about them as uh, the talk top dogs, and then all of a sudden, you know, Tennessee comes in and surprises everybody. The Yuli bulldozer, Derrick Henry, oh the king. God. Tell you what, and what's remarkable is I guess he's on pace. He had twenty three carries last night. Talking about someone who's who's on pace for almost five hundred carries this season, yet shows no signs of slowing down. And he is the motor to that Tennessee offense. And the Bills came into this game with a plus 108 point differential through the first five games of the season. Basically, they're beating teams by 20-something points each game. And that was after that opening opening game loss to the Pittsburgh Steelers. They were the hottest team in football beside the Arizona Cardinals. And yet, this shows you what the competitive balance is in the NFL. Tennessee getting the job done at home. It's interesting, too, Jeffrey. And, and I'm sure watching the game, and you see the, the at the end, Buffalo going for it on, on fourth and one, you know, right at the end of this game, you know, right inside territory where they can kick a field goal, go to overtime, there's 22 seconds left. And I, I realize how life changes and how I'm getting older and uh, maybe I'm the old fuddy duddy. Right. But I'm thinking, how are you not kicking this field goal? How are you not taking this to overtime? And, and you know, then you see Josh Allen slip and I'm like, see, told you so. But then I looked at next generation stats. And they said that the win probability of the Buffalo Bills was basically at about 75% if they went for it, as opposed to kicking the field goal, when the percentages dropped greatly to about 42%. So it shows you today, too, how analytics are affecting things in the NFL, how teams, younger coaches are looking at things a bit differently, maybe, than some of their uh, older uh, peers, if you will, and, and just how tight everything is in the NFL. We only have one undefeated team keeping the Miami Dolphins, those remaining members of that 72 squad from popping that champagne, the Arizona Cardinals, and they've been the only undefeated team now for two straight weeks. So I think what's happened is, and you're seeing it in the television ratings, it's so close, so tight. The fact that there's legalized gambling has led to an uptick, I think, in audience as well. People are interested in these games, especially staying till the end for certain reasons, if you understand what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. So it's really been a, a banner season. And, of course, to the quarterback play, never been more exciting. What's more fun than watching Lamar Jackson? Uh, on a Sunday, right? Unless you hate the Baltimore Ravens. I mean, this guy has been unbelievable. Justin Herbert in just his second NFL season. And, you know, now we got uh, we have Trevor Lawrence with his first NFL win. It was amazing. He was 0-5 to start his NFL career. To put in perspective how unusual this was, he was 86-4 and during his time in high school and in college. All of the games that he had played, 86-4, and but 0-5 in the NFL shows you how tough it is to win as well. Well, I mean, t take a look at how many quarterbacks started uh, in the NFL in their first season. How many? Not many. Peyton Manning? Well, but now the clock's ticking. 
because of the contracts, right? It all goes back to legal stuff, right, Jeffrey? <laughs> I mean, yeah. you got a, you got a contract. It's already a, you got a four year deal basically with a, fi- a fifth year rookie option. But you will know right away in the NFL essentially if you have that player or not. You saw what the Cardinals did a few years ago with Josh Rosen. Take a quarterback with a number ten overall pick. Next thing you know, he's gone the following season, and Josh Rosen just bopping around the league as, as a backup. I think he might be with their, with Atlanta, but, I mean, that will tell you how it was. But they're making you show early on what you can do. And you look at a situation now with the Miami Dolphins, with Tua Tagovailoa, whether or not he's going to still be with this team in 2022. He had just, you know, been around with Alabama a couple years ago and this highly touted guy, and yet people are already wondering if he's going to be able to get the job done in South Florida for this disappointing 1-5 Dolphins team. A lot of talk about Deshaun Watson, but no rest for the wicked. And what we're seeing, too, and Jeffrey, I know what a huge University of Florida fan you are, how you are the official law firm of the University of Florida, which is an incredible honor. Uh, But you see now how the aspects of the college game are coming into the pros, right? Uh, We have a lot more mobile quarterbacks. We have read uh, pass options. Things that the NFL has transitioned its offense rather than doing, uh, you know, just a heavy, heavy pass offense with a ton of verbiage and things like this. They And you can add all that stuff later, but they're trying to get younger quarterbacks more comfortable quickly to be able to contribute. It was the 2013 Seattle Seahawks that created a formula. It was this. Win while a rookie contract is with your starting quarterback, i.e. Russell Wilson. You could build a team around him, and then when you have to pay the quarterback, that's all well and good. You worry about it then. And by the way, usually that team that pays the rookie quarterback, they don't usually get back to win a Super Bowl. You know, they, they keep their quarterback sometimes with extension, but it's a lot harder to win when you can't spend on pieces around them because the QB's making all that much money. So look at the Kansas City Chiefs a couple years ago, a team that fast-tracked Patrick Mahomes, end up winning a Super Bowl while he's on his rookie contract. And now they're a team that's, you know, bereft of defense. Well, how, why is this? Because they're going to be paying Patrick Mahomes a ton of money and they don't have the cash to spend. So you're trying to get these rookie quarterbacks on the field as quickly as possible while they're still low-priced labor, to be honest with you. Build that championship team around them and then worry about the future. So does that explain why the NFL, the top uh, out of the top five picks, maybe three or four quarterbacks and, and half of them, don't pan out. Yeah, and you're willing to take that shot. And it's, it's very hard to predict a lot of things in the NFL. How, do, how is this player going to lead? How are they going to process information at the NFL level? Uh, you know, those types of things. Uh, you know, there, there's just various things that go with it, plus stability. I think that's a big thing. When you look at, and you mentioned Peyton Manning earlier, and the success of the Manning brothers, they had continuity as far as their offensive coordinators goes. Guys that stuck with them. When you have a quarterback that goes through three coaches in three years, it is so difficult having to learn a new offense, having to, you know, just adapt to what that coach is trying to bring to the table. It's different people who chose you and the talent around you. And I think that's one of the big things that leads to failure as well. But, I mean, the quarterback position, it is the hardest position to fill in the NFL. I'll say that beside kicker. Kicker's another animal. And last, you know, this past week we had a good rebound by kickers because they were absolutely horrible the week before. And it always amazes me how we have, you know, 300 billion people on this earth, right? And whatever the number is, and yet we can't have 32 good kickers in the NFL. I, you know, I don't know why, but that's just how it is. But quarterbacks seemingly almost the same way. Alex, I'd like to have your perspective on uh, how important uh, team culture is as far as winning in the NFL because I know at Meldon Law, we spend a lot of time on team culture, and uh, we consider that to be essential for a winning tradition. Uh, we, you, know, you hear about the star running back, the star quarterback, you know, the star wide receiver. 
Um, what's your perspective on uh, team culture and how it affects a winning tradition? Oh, it's monstrous. I mean, because you want to have standards in your building and you want to have leaders, you know, that, that set the example for those around them. And you want to have accountability for those around you, right? I mean, that those are the types of things you want to have a nurturing environment. And listen, you know, I know law is a little bit different than football, right? I mean, some of the, the things, with, and not every player, I, I don't want to say is an angel, but there are some players who are wired differently now. But, you know, teams that build a successful culture are able to take these players. Some of them have mental health issues. Some of them have come from not-so-great beginnings. And they're going to see the world maybe a little bit differently, and you want to work with those types of players. So I think it starts there. I think it starts with your head coach as well. It's one of the reasons that Urban Meyer, not only, you know, what he did on his weekend off in Ohio became such a hot-button topic, but, but also the fact that he didn't fly back with his team after a loss. You need to be yeah, there. That I mean, was, that that was something that really, to, to NFL folks, well, the other thing is another story mm-hmm. onto itself. Uh, you know, what happens in Ohio does not stay in Ohio. I think it was a lot of people wondering where was the captain of this ship uh, when the Jacksonville Jaguars were looking for rowboats, and he wasn't there. So Urban Meyer on some, I don't want to say thin ice in Jacksonville, but I tell you, in, in Shad Khan, the owner has said it, you know, we were disappointed. We want to see better. Hopefully their victory against the Dolphins this past Sunday in London, a sign of things to come on Florida's first coast. I know. uh, I was listening to Tony Dungy comment on uh, the Urban Meyer situation, and he said to him that, you know, he never in his coaching career would have thought uh, not to fly back with the team. All the assistant coaches flew back, by the way, and then they went away for the weekend. That's one thing. But at least they made the trip back. And And it's just the optics of that. Just not a good situation. And, and Urban has had a very rough transition to life in the NFL. Uh, we'll see how he's able to handle it moving ahead. The one thing he has going for him, Trevor Lawrence is going to be an awfully good quarterback, I think, by the time it's all well, said and done. Well, I think that that is a, a really um, you know interesting perspective. I want to get back to that right after the break. Uh, this is Jeffrey Meldon from Meldon Law. And uh, we are in Meldon Law and Friends. We're with our uh, good friend Alex Marvez. And uh, we're going to take a uh, 60-second break and uh, let you uh, listen to one of our spots. And then we are going to be right back on Melden Law and Friends. The Gator Nation will be the first to tell you that in all kinds of weather, we all stick together. Which is why Melden Law is honored to be the only official law firm partner of the Florida Gators. We hope you never find yourself the victim of a serious accident. But if you do, our team is here for you. Gators won't back down from a fight, and neither do we. When you're a member of the Gator Nation, you know what it means to never back down. Melvin Law has been a proud supporter of the Gator Nation since 1971. Two forces that won't back down. As the old saying goes, if you can't beat them, join them. Welcome back to Melden Law and Friends. I'm Jeffrey Melden here with our special guest, Alex Marvez, who is a commentator for Sirius XM NFL channel and uh, is on uh, the air, what, four times a week? Four times a week during the season. Tuesday nights, Friday nights, Saturday morning, Sunday morning. You will hear me on Channel 88 on Sirius XM, my 27th year 
covering the NFL, I am a very blessed individual. Yeah. So, so do you like have to study every night? I study all the time because if you snooze, you lose. I am constantly on Twitter, cultivating stats and things that can help, trying to monitor news situations, things like that, watching replays of games. But it's it's a labor of love, so to speak. I mean, I get paid to talk about football. Is there really a better <laughs> better job than that with, with my side gig at All Elite Wrestling? No, I think I think I'm doing okay professionally. So Thank you me. were talking about uh, how uh, in the last few years. The stats, was it Next Gen or somebody that you yeah. see, you were mentioning? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, Next Generation Stats, and there are a number of different stat groups. And, and I just want to go back to what analytics started in the NFL, because I'm very blessed to work with the godfather, Gil Brandt, on SiriusXM. We're on Tuesday nights, 8 to 10 Eastern, and then 7 to 9 on Fridays. And Gil and I are very close, and he brought analytics into the NFL, but he called them probabilities. He, typed, he had different things that you'd be looking for, for example, when scouting a player, and you would type in these numbers into the old computers that had the reels and things like that. It would run through, and then you would, you would get these numbers, and it would give you the odds of, okay, if a player runs this speed or if a player is this height, this weight, what is their, their probability of success? Well, just imagine that amped up to an extreme level where basically you're looking at what are the odds if we go for it on fourth down when it comes to winning? You know, when should we punt? When should we do different things? What type of players should we be looking for? I mean, and it's no mistake that the Cleveland Browns, and again, they got to win some more games here. They're three and three. But one of the reasons they got back on their feet was the effective use of analytics. And that's become a big, I don't say a culture war in the NFL, but just something different. Because you have old school coaches who may try to go by their gut instinct. And while that may sometimes be right, maybe that's not the smart thing. We saw David Culley of the Houston Texans make a huge mistake against the New England Patriots at the end of a game that, that really cost his team uh, potentially a victory. We saw this past week Vic Fangio of the Denver Broncos with two terrible challenges because he didn't have someone in his ear. So, And I'm not saying Vic doesn't use analytics, but you need to have people on game day that are telling you, you want to challenge this call, you don't want to challenge this call. You want to go for it here, here's the probability of doing it. And sometimes you know, breaking down this information to a way that some longtime football coaches can understand it uh, is a challenge, you know, for, for, you know, the analytics department and for the coaches as well to not just dismiss it as a bunch of numbers without people. But yeah, next gen stats, just one of those groups. And listen, football and the coverage of it has changed so much through the years, Jeffrey. I mean, to be quite honest with you, you look at so many things now, air yards, you know, is something that's considered. There's just different numbers and stats that go beyond what we grew up with. Uh, that that come into play now, but that's what that's how things are. It's going to be very exact science. It's not. I don't know if it'll ever be like baseball, where it's so much analytics now. I mean, where you have all the shifts and you have you know pitchers sit five, six, seven pitchers a game rather than expecting your starter to go seven, eight innings, maybe a middle reliever, and then your closer. Things have changed in, in sports because everyone is looking for that competitive edge. What what is the reason why? Most teams go for one point after a touchdown rather than two points. Uh, well, the, the numbers will tell you that you're probably best off going for the one unless the other team commits a penalty. And what you've seen more and more this season is if, if from the two-yard line, you know where the extra point is, if, if there's a penalty and it moves it to the one, then the team is going to go generally for the two-point conversion because the, the numbers will tell you, the analytics will tell you that you are better off, your percentages are better scoring the two at, at that point. And so that's again, why Josh Allen went for uh, the first down, because he didn't have to get into the end zone from the two. He just had to get right. one yard. Right, and then they would call the timeout for them. They had one timeout left with 22 seconds left in that Tennessee game last night. Didn't get there. He slipped. 
And that's the human nature part about all this. You know, the analytics don't tell you that there's a slick field, you know, in, in Nashville, and he's going to slide. And they don't tell you that Jeffrey Simmons is going to be crashing in on Deion Dawkins, the left tackle, and blowing the play up. They don't tell you that sort of stuff. You know, you still got to execute the plays. But that's the logic that goes into it, looking again at some of the numbers. And, and I think there's a marriage between a field because numbers can tell you one thing, but as a coach, you know if your team is tired. You know that if your team has something left, and maybe because they're getting pounded by Derrick Henry last night as well, so many times, 23 carries, 143 yards. Maybe Sean McDermott knows my defense just doesn't have it in overtime. We need to try to win this game now rather than tie, go to the field goal, and then risk a coin toss uh, to try to win this game. Crazy part is I really believe that whatever team won the flip would have won the game with a touchdown uh, simply because Tennessee was down to nothing in their secondary either. And Josh Allen was having a lot of success. I think he would have been able to march downfield and put them in the end zone. I also think Tennessee could have potentially marched downfield as well. So, you know, you, you know, for Sean McDermott, I don't want to say it's even a learning lesson. It's just you went for it. You didn't make it. You got to move on. Buffalo's got a game. Uh, Buffalo coming in on bye this week. They're, they're in good shape. Uh, not so much for Tennessee. They got a lot of injuries they got to deal with coming into this weekend. Well, it's fascinating. I mean, both teams are 4-2 and two now, so both yep. teams are right there in the playoff uh, scenario. So, you know, it's, you know, it, those things happen. Um, what do you think about the Cardinals going 6-0? and Crazy, huh? Crazy. And it's so interesting. Most teams try to get younger in free agency. The Arizona Cardinals got older. I mean, you look, they go out and they get J.J. Watt. They get A.J. Green. They trade for Rodney Hudson. I mean, these are just a couple of the players that they bring in. But what they have there is an incredible communication between the head coach and Cliff Kingsbury and their quarterback, Kyler Murray. And Kyler Murray is the real deal. I mean, he is playing at an MVP level. He is just so exciting to watch. You know, this in- the incredible combination of mobility and yet throwing the football and what he has learned how to do. And it's the same thing with Lamar Jackson in, in Baltimore. But what I think Kyler Murray deserves a lot of credit for, he is now a runner second. He is now a passer first, and they have given him a plethora of weapons to work with. I think they realized that Larry Fitzgerald had, had reached the end of the line a bit. He was 38 years old. They went with a player named Rondale Moore out of Purdue in the second round. He's really added a dynamic element to this offense. But I think the defense is so improved, and they're, they're exciting to watch. And it's funny because I was looking ahead, Jeffrey, coming in tonight. I don't like to peek too far ahead. Week 7 is still upon us, but the Arizona Cardinals are a 17.5-point favorite against the Houston Texans. And Houston is just running out the string this year. We all know that. But then come week 8, Thursday night football, maybe even come the Spurriers to see it, Arizona-Green Bay. And I think a lot of folks wondering if that is going to be the test of this Arizona Cardinals team, just how good they are. Because playing the Cleveland Browns last week, that wasn't the Brownies that, that we've seen a lot this season. They are a really beat-up football team, and, and you're, you see that uh, coming into the game on Thursday night against Denver. They will not have Kareem Hunt. They will not have Nick Chubb. They also place Jeremiah Awuso-Koromoa. I got it right. We call him Wu. Uh, he is not going to be there. A really nice rookie linebacker out of Notre Dame. They are beat up in Baker Mayfield with that torn labrum in his left shoulder. So, you know, injuries affect the team as well. But Arizona... I think they are legit, and they are steamrolling toward the so, postseason. So are they playing at Green Bay? I believe that game is at Green Bay. Okay, because that add, makes a difference. Green the Bay lore. does not yeah. lose at home very often. They usually don't. And by the way, very nice that this game is in late October rather than late December for the Arizona Cardinals, if you know what I'm saying. Yes, yeah, because 
uh, if you've ever seen a snow game in Green Bay, yes. <laughs> it's not NFL football in the traditional form. Right. No, you are right about it. Okay, that. so we got to switch topics. I, I want some perspectives on what's happened to the Gators and what you see in the future. Ugh, I see a new defensive coordinator in the future. I can tell you that, and I was so frustrating to watch. The LSU game, as you know, Jeffrey, I'm, I'm so blessed to be able to invite it to go to your tailgates. They are legendary with, with Buddy uh, Buddy Howden. And, and, you know, they're incredible stuff before the games. But this LSU game, maybe, you know, I, what do you say? I mean, Todd Grantham, and I know it's interesting, he was offered – an NFL defensive coordinator's job a couple years ago, and he decided to stay. He enjoyed it; would have even paid him more money. But he really liked what he was doing with He's the Gators. He's getting paid one point eight million. He then was, was going to get paid jump two, change. He was get, he had offered two point one million by wow. an NFL team, and he decided, nope, I like what I'm doing. And you know, from what I understand, his defenses are pretty complex, and just players are having a hard time understanding it. And I, I don't know. I don't think the guy's a, a bad coordinator, but but these players just they don't seem to be executing the plays the way that they're doing it. There's a disconnect. And I don't blame 19, 18, 19-year-old kids for that, to be quite honest with you. I put a lot of that on the coaching staff for them not being comfortable to play. I, I still don't know how LSU ran for all those yards. So frustrating. But I think we also saw the changing of the guarded quarterback. And I think with Richardson now getting all that playing time in the second half, I, I think there's – I don't want to say pressure to play a young player like that, but I think Emory Jones has his limitations. I think he can take you to here, whereas a player like this is – I mean, I, I, I get visions of Cam Newton, to be honest with you. And I'm talking good Cam, not the laptop-stealing University <laughs> of Florida Cam. I'm talking hey. about you know, yeah. low-hanging low fruit, yeah. sorry. But, but I mean, he's, he's so big, he can throw, and he's only going to get better. And at this point, folks – we're looking at the Gator Bowl. We're looking at, you know, postseason bowl. I was actually looking the other day, what terrible bowl would we go to if we're, if we're low enough to get there? But this is where you need to start fast-tracking him, looking ahead to 2022. I think the time was right for a quarterback change. He's going to take his lumps a bit. He's still learning, uh, you know, how to play at the college level. But, gosh, does he have some tools? Already a pretty special player. And he honestly, if the defense could have just done anything against LSU, this is a different conversation than what yeah. we're having. Right when now. the offense delivers 42 points and you lose. And you lose. Just, <laughs> what can you do? You feel like Patrick Mahomes, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, Patrick Mahomes doesn't lose games. I mean, I think the lowest point total – Scored in a loss where he started and finished was 20 points. I know there was that Indianapolis game a few years ago where he got knocked out of the game with an injury, and that that was that for them. But, you know, when you don't have that defense to rely upon, it's not complimentary football. So frustrating. Listen, Dan Mullen's the right coach. I, I'm a big Dan Mullen fan, especially after going through Will Muschamp, especially after going through Coach McElveen. Maybe they're great people, but they're, these, these were just not good teams. I, I trust... Mullen's going to get it right. I think we'll have a change of defensive coordinator, and I think we're going to be okay. But obviously a frustrating season for all of us. You know, it's, it's interesting because some coaches, you go, these are NFL coaches, and there are other people you go, this is college coaches. Right. Explain that. Well, because college coaches are used to control, and they're used to having, basically it's their domain. And also you can switch out the talent every year. And I covered the Miami Dolphins when Nick Saban was head coach, and one of the big problems he had was you sign a player – uh, well, you're sort of stuck with that player. And then you realize, well, I, I signed this guy. I thought it was one thing. Well, guess what? He's, a, he's an adult, and he doesn't respond to your type of coaching. Your staff didn't get the right guy. So it's hard to switch out those players, whereas in recruiting, every year you're getting new people. Uh, you know, there's no question you are the, the king of your domain. And I think sometimes dealing with adults is a lot different than it is dealing with college players, and that's one of the big difficulties that these college coaches have coming to the NFL. 
Yeah, it must be, you know, <clears throat> I, I'm sure for Urban Meyer, you know, it's a new experience. And uh, anybody that coaches, I was thinking of Todd uh, Grantham as far as, like, he did had a lot of experience, you know, uh, you know, in NFL, and now he's in the uh, college, and it's it's a whole different deal. Whole different deal, especially if you don't have veteran defensive players, you know, and you got to adjust as a coach. So it's like, right? It's it's like you know, you're teaching, uh, you know, postgraduate school versus teaching freshmen in college. Yeah, and, <laughs> and think about what Coach Mullen's done on the offensive side of the ball. He changes up his offense each year to take advantage. He's a really good coach like that. I think with Todd, when he looks back at it, probably tried to do a little too much with the past couple groups. That he right, because if you're dealing with a, you know All-American, it's one thing when you're dealing with a not-so-great, a good player but not an All-American, it's different. Listen, we could go on and on with Alex Marvez. We may twist his arm and get him back later in the season because I love having Alex Marvez on Melden Law and Friends. It's time for a break. We're broadcasting from Coach Spurrier's podcast room at Spurrier's Gridiron Grill, and we'll be back in three minutes. When you're a member of the Gator Nation, you know what it means to never back down. Melden Law has been a proud supporter of the Gator Nation since 1971. Two forces that won't back down. As the old saying goes, if you can't beat them, join them. And I was in an accident. Someone ran a red light and hit me, and I was hurt. You don't know where to turn. Luckily, I called Jeffrey. These big insurance companies, they don't want you to win. They truly don't. But Jeffrey and his firm and the people that work here, they just really fight for you. You call the law offices of Jeffrey Belden because you're going to need help and they will help you. The Melden Law Firm from the beginning has been built on giving back to the community. I enjoy coming to work as much today as I did in 1971 when I opened my practice. I don't look at this as a job. I look at it as serving other people. While we're alive, what better feeling can you achieve than knowing that you've helped other people and thereby you enrich your own life? The Gator Nation will be the first to tell you that in all kinds of weather, we all stick together which is why Melden Law is honored to be the only official law firm partner of the Florida Gators. We hope you never find yourself the victim of a serious accident, but if you do, our team is here for you. Gators won't back down from a fight, and neither do we. We still hear it. The sound of victory the joy of being part of something great. And while things may not be the same right now, we haven't gone anywhere. If you bleed orange and blue, then Melden Law is the firm for you. Oh my gosh, I can't even believe this. 
Look, look what you have done to my truck. Excuse me, it's your fault, it's not my fault. Yes, it is your no, fault. Not, not, I am not. calling Jeffrey Maldon from Maldon Law. So I'm going to call Jeffrey, my husband. Meldon Law, this is Jeffrey speaking. Jeffrey! This person lives here. This person lady, he might... New client? Yes, but this one might be a little tricky. Welcome back to Meldon Law and Friends. I'm Jeffrey Meldon. I want to make a few announcements. Uh, this weekend we have uh, the Real Rosewood Foundation uh, here at Spurrier's Gridiron Grill up top at... Uh, the Visors, which is an incredible space, uh, 5 to 10 o'clock. Uh, you can go ahead and uh, uh, hang out with uh, us. It's uh, a $50 donation. It's uh, Lizzie Jenkins' 83rd birthday. Uh, please uh, join and uh, support us. It's, it's a great foundation. And uh, this is Tom Petty's birthday week. Uh, Wednesday is his uh, 71st birthday. And uh, we are going to uh, be honoring him in Gainesville in a number of different ways, including uh, the debut of the Wildflowers uh, movie, uh, both at the Hippodrome and uh, Regal Cinema. So uh, check it out. And then uh, on the weekend, uh, there's going to be an uh, impromptu get-together of a bunch of Gainesville musicians uh, who are going to be celebrating uh, Tom Petty's uh, legacy at Hartwood. So uh, a lot of fun things going on this week. Um, I'm here with uh, a famous plastic surgeon, uh, John Poser, who uh, has been a friend of mine for many, many years. And uh, I want to welcome you to the show. How are you doing today, hey, uh, John? Good, Jeffrey. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, it's about time. It's been 35 years. Of course, they didn't have <laughs> internet 35 years ago. So, so I'll, yeah, forgive you. I'll forgive you for that. So every Wednesday night for about 15 years, John and... Uh, uh, some of our friends would uh, meet over at the Outback uh, for Wednesday night, boys' night out, and, and we uh, really cemented our relationship uh, there. Ward Scott used to join us, oh, and yeah. uh, David. Yeah, uh, sniffing. Sniffing, yeah. And, uh, and then we'd have uh, guests every once in a yeah, while. we'd invite a few people over, but the martinis, the blooming onions, and the prime rib was, you know, great. So anyhow... Uh, we we uh, have enjoyed uh, uh, you know friendship for many many years, uh, and I want to you know talk to John a little bit about what the nature is of uh, plastic surgery over the years, how things have changed. But I want to first uh, get into a little bit of your background, how you wound up in Gainesville, Florida. Where did you study? Uh, you know, tell it. Where did you grow up, John? Well, I'm from Wisconsin originally, a little town named Columbus. Columbus, Wisconsin is about 4,500 people, and um, my dad was a doctor there. We have a clinic there since 1894. My grandfather wow. started it, and he actually was a good athlete, and he had a tryout when he was with the Rush medical team with the Chicago Cubs when they were about six years old. Who was that? Your grandfather? My grandfather, I'm, you know, the Dr. Ian Poser. He practiced 55 years, and he was a doctor that had a sleigh and delivered babies in the snow. I had a buffalo robe, so we're going back in time there. And then my dad and my uncle took over the practice. My dad and my uncle are both in the Hall of Fame. My dad eventually played baseball for the uh, White Sox. He signed a bonus back in 1930, no, 29, 30. He was the only guy with a car on University of Wisconsin campus except the president. Um, <laughs> How'd that happen? Well, 
it was during the Depression. The money was tight. And my dad had a bonus, so you know he got like thirty five hundred dollars, which would be like probably fifty thousand to a hundred thousand now. Uh, people weren't making that much money then. And you could buy a car for about six hundred bucks. Oh yeah, and th there was not big money in in, in uh, the universities at that time, including the coaches only could make as much as the professors made. So it was kind mm -hmm. of a you know, limited system. But anyway, of interest, he ended up in the Hall of Fame, baseball and basketball. The College Hall of Fame? Uh, no, the University of College Hall of Fame for Wisconsin. Oh. But two highlights were that he he played, he guarded Johnny Wooden. They're both friends for life, and um, and Jeffrey got a chance to meet him once uh, at a Final Four game, and we we became Johnny and I became friends after my dad died because Johnny lasted ninety nine, my dad to ninety two, and I've flown out and seen him a few times. But Jeffrey's got a good story. Yeah, so I'm going to, I'm at a Final Four uh, basketball tournament. The Gators were playing, and uh, it was in Indianapolis. And uh, I spotted John Wood in, in the crowd, and uh, John Poser had told me that he had been, his father had been lifelong friends with uh, John Wood. And in fact, John told me a story that uh, his father, had played basketball uh, at Wisconsin and uh, wouldn't played at Purdue. Pur and, Purdue. Yeah. And that in the Big Ten, uh, the leading scorer uh, at the time was uh, uh, John, John's father, uh, and that John Wooden was the second leading scorer, but that uh, uh, John's dad graduated and decided to go to medical school uh, after the first semester, which I guess would be the end of December. And uh, so, anyhow, he told me that he had communicated with, uh, you know, Wooden quite a bit. So I went down to say hello to Wooden, and uh, the first thing that happened was uh, a security guard came up to me uh, and said, no, you know, don't, don't bother uh, John Wooden because, uh, you know, he, you know, we want to keep him protected. And so I leaned over to John Wood and I said, I'm a friend of John Poser's and I want to say hello. And he looked at the security guard and he said, go away, go away. <laughs> and so I, I had some, you know, uh, I knew that uh, he really did know uh, Dr. Poser. And we started talking and I told him the story about uh, uh, John's dad being ahead of him and scoring in the Big Ten and uh, John Wooden, what a, what a kind man. He was great. He was there with his daughter. So he, he looks up to me and he says, that's not how I remember it. <laughs> My dad might have been exaggerating a little bit at that point. There was some, some mystery in it when he left the school to play for the White Sox and go to med school. So it might have something to do with that. But um, yeah, a lot of great memories of Johnny Wooden. He was a very, he was a gentleman and he actually came to University of Florida about 10 10 or 12 years ago and gave a, a talk uh, off the top of He was of a, at the Performing Arts yeah, Theater. I was there. Because yeah. I've read all his books and mm -hmm. what an incredible leader. And I remember that uh, talk. Yeah, I was, I was sitting in the audience with his daughter and the daughter says, I couldn't get up on the stage. He said, he wants to see you. I go, well, I guess I'll jump on the stage then. So I jumped on the stage. He was back there with the president of the university and, and I heard him say, Where's John Poser? <laughs> so I go, well, he must be pretty popular around here. But anyway, that's one good story. One other story I want to tell him, we'll, we'll go on with the, the plastic surgery. Yeah, yeah. So uh -huh. for those of you who have listened to uh, us talk about John Wooden, I, I regard him as probably the greatest uh, college coach in any sport of all times. You know, he led, 
UCLA to 10 national championships in a 12-year span. And what was more impressive was his leadership strategies. And in, in my law office, um, I have his uh, pyramid of success uh, leading to, uh, you know, uh, the goals of, uh, you know, winning. Uh, but they're all founded on um, really incredible blocks. So that's uh, something we can talk about another day. What I want to get around to is, um, you know, plastic surgery. I know that, uh, well, tell us, you after you were an athlete yourself in, at Wisconsin, right? Yeah, my freshman year I played three sports and joined a fraternity. I thought I was back in high school. It was a little bit harder than I thought, let's put it that way. <laughs> so I, I got down to baseball, but I did quite well in baseball. I was the best pitcher in the Big Ten my junior year. Then I got an injury in my finger my senior year when I was actually doing pretty well. But anyway, I did enjoy sports there, and I was the only one in pre-med in the, uh, in, on the baseball team or pretty much any team. I did get in uh, Northwestern Chicago. Uh, interesting, my grandfather was at medical school at Rush, which was right around the corner. Uh, but anyway, I, I was there, and actually Rick Reichard, a famous athlete at the time. Was yeah, Rick, Rick uh, signed, was one of the first bonus babies, signed for a gazillion dollars. And Rick Reichard lives in Gainesville and is friends with, with yeah, all of us. Yeah, he moved to Gainesville because his dad moved down here to retire, and his, his brother uh, owns Ballyhoo here with a sports bar. But anyway, mm -hmm. he was I was 26, he was 29, and... He was captain of the team, so I said, pitch batting practice. I said, okay. So I go to med school and make rounds, and I come out and pitch batting practice for the White Sox. That was quite fun. And uh, we've been friends ever since. Uh, interestingly, my dad and, my, and Rick both played for the White Sox. Both their dads mm -hmm. were doctors, and they had the same birthday. Which wow, is, that's which quite is a coincidence. Unusual. But anyway, from Northwestern, I went to, to Michigan, and I did general surgery because my dad was a general surgeon. But in his day, general surgeons were king. They did deliveries, you know, C-sections, orthopedics, tonsils, et cetera. And my dad thought that's the way to go. But I could see the handwriting on the wall that general surgery is very tough. A lot of people have cancer, and you have to be within 20 minutes of the hospital because people can die on you. So I tried to think of something alternative just in case, and I thought, well, maybe it was either e or uh, it was um, either plastic surgery or colon rectal or cardiovascular. Of course, colon rectal, maybe you have to have a certain knack for that. Cardiovascular is really plugged up blood vessels and people's legs get cut off, and it's kind of a tough one. My plastic, I thought, well, I really didn't know much about it. I go, well, plastic must be breast implants. Well, I found out it actually involves um, a numerous thing. It involves facial fractures, you know, facial reconstruction on children, hand surgery, burns, uh, trauma to the skin, ulcers from people laying in beds for long periods of time and microvascular. So it turned out to be a very interesting field. And surprisingly to me, I, my grandfather was a doctor on my mother's side, and he had a cousin from Michigan or from Minnesota, but originally grew up in Nebraska. And his dad was in a car accident. and I mean, in a car accident. They had horses then. But anyway, buggy accident. And so he had to work in eighth grade. He went to a dentist's office and the dentist said, hey, you're pretty good. You should maybe go to dental school. So he ended up going to dental school, then he ended up going to medical school, and then he ended up being uh, founding the American Society of Plastic Surgery, which I'm part of, which is kind of unique in a way. I, I didn't know that until about 10 years ago. So that was fun to find out. So so where did you get your your training for being a plastic surgeon? Well, I, I went to 
Boston University, uh, one of my best friends in Michigan's wife was a daughter of the head of the Navy, or head of the Navy out there, and there's a doctor who was a plastic surgeon that worked there and also at, at Boston University. So I talked to him and I, I got into Boston, which was quite fun, great town. It's kind of the uh, is that, yeah, and you know you had a great time there. Uh, uh, I met my wife there. It was just a fun place to be, and you know the Red Sox were there, and I actually pitched batting practice for the Tigers when they came to town in Fenway Park. But you know, for a, a kid who was like thirty-two to thirty-four, Boston was a great town. And, you know, with all the sports and hey, for a kid that's uh, sixty-five or seventy, it's a great town too. Now, let's go back, Jeffrey. Let's see if we can ratchet let's it down go, a little bit. Let's go. Can we get down the fifty? Sometime. Can we get it down the fifty? <laughs> Forty-five. Yeah. Whatever. So anyhow, um, we're going to take a break on Law Talk. Uh, I'm sorry. We do Law Talk live every Saturday on the sky 97.3 we're entering our 20th year i want to invite everybody who's either watching or listening to check us out saturday morning 10 30 law talk live it's a great show uh, we've been on the radio a long long time uh and we take we take a lot of pride entering into our 20th year every single week at 10 30 on saturday morning so that's something that i'm uh, very excited about Anyhow, we're going to be back in 60 seconds on Meldon Law and Friends. When you're a member of the Gator Nation, you know what it means to never back down. Meldon Law has been a proud supporter of the Gator Nation since 1971. Two forces that won't back down. As the old saying goes, if you can't beat them, Join them. We still hear it. The sound of victory. The joy of being part of something great. And while things may not be the same right now, we haven't gone anywhere. If you bleed orange and blue, then Melden Law is the firm for you. Welcome back to Melden Law and Friends. I'm Jeffrey Melden, uh, founder of Melden Law. I'm here with my uh, guest, Dr. John Poser, a uh, well-known plastic surgeon in the uh, Gainesville area. And uh, John, I want to find out a little bit about, uh, you know, how you wound up in Gainesville and uh, what plastic surgery was like uh, when you started. Well, when I, when I started, uh, it was somewhat primitive compared to today because we went from, uh, you know, flaps, flaps that you had to, trans- I mean, flip from one spot to another to cover up the wounds to flaps you could actually take off the body and, and sew them back in another part of the body. And that's where there's a lot of reconstruction. you probably heard about women who have breast cancers. They have the deep flap, D-I-E-P, and that's actually take a, 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 vert, a elliptical portion of the buttock area with a, a strong artery to it, and you, you sew it back into the chest wall to make a, a, a breast again and sometimes use the implant underneath to fill it out a bit. So that was not, that did not happen that was uh, created in California by Dr. Bunky, and he he's famous for it, and his son is there now, and he had to invent 
these little micro instruments and micro uh, you know, threads that would actually work, you know, sewing up blood vessels, which is very hard to do. Now, when when you talk about you know uh, plastic surgery, a lot of people think of you know cosmetic plastic surgery. Uh, however, a lot of what a plastic surgeon does has to do with helping people that have been, you know, disfigured in one way or another uh, and need some help to feel, you know, good, have good self-esteem. Well, that's where people, all they think about as plastic surgeons is, uh, you know, boob doctors. And in reality, we have just as much training as a neurosurgeon and maybe, you know, more, more we can cover all the areas of the body uh, in every sense. Uh, for instance, there's a, name, a guy named Tessier from France who invented uh, cranial facial surgery for children that have the facial defects where you can preserve the eyes without tearing out the retinas and you know, move the whole facial skeleton around to make somebody looking bizarre into actually looking more human. So we have people like that that are, are forefront-type people who are you know, geniuses that work on that sort of thing. And right here in town, we have a guy named Ramadan. He's not here anymore. But he was one of the first to sew on fingers. We used to, you know, if you had your finger cut off, you could get it sewn up. So those are microvascular things. But we have, we've had perfected, uh, you know, the cosmetic part too, in the sense that um, what we do now, the implants are safe, and we 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 do things and try to try and make people into, you know, looking younger. We just try to fill up what age is produced. Sometimes it's skin tightening, sometimes it's skin filling. So it's all changed that way as far as facelifts and other areas of the body, fat re redistribution, liposuction. I was the first one to do liposuction in Gainesville. We were using abortion catheters, which are plastic, and uh, they used to bend all the time, and they were crazy. And TV20 came on, and they wanted to film it, so I said, okay. So I was doing it, and then I thought, well, this is great. I'm on TV. Then about two weeks later, my mother says, she calls up, I saw you on TV. I go, huh. Well, CNN had bought TV20. So I was around the world doing liposuction, one of the first you know people to do it, <laughs> and I thought it really bring in. I thought my business really blossomed after that, and I, people go, "Yeah, I saw it. It looked gruesome to me." But anyway, <laughs> it's got a lot better now. We've gone from like twelve millimeter abortion plastic catheters to like three to four millimeter metal catheters. It's much more efficient and you know less traumatic. So. That's that's one of the main things we do now, and, and that includes mommy makeovers. Yeah, I, yeah you've heard, you've told me about mommy makeovers, and uh, explain to our uh, viewers and listeners uh, what a mommy makeover is and who are the prime candidates for it. Well, mommy makeovers obviously have been mothers, and it could be one child. Or, you know, I've had people with six children. I've had people with six children look better than one with one child, but... What a baby does change the hormonal system. You, you, you add fat. Most people gain uh, 20, 25 pounds if they're lucky. Most other women gain 50 pounds, and they don't lose the 25 pounds. But the breasts get bigger, and then they atrophy after they breastfeed, so they lose all the breast tissue, and they start hanging. So uh, you get less volume, and you get hanging skin. On the stomach side, you know, the baby stretches out the muscles, so the muscles stretched out like a girdle that's too big. Uh, and they have to fix that by tightening it up. You just imbricate it or sew it together again to make a tighter girdle. But then again, there's extra skin, so you got to cut off the extra skin at the bottom of a flap, which you dissect from the pubis all the way up to the xiphoid, which is kind of your chest bone. <clears throat> and then you pull it down like a shade and cut it off. And then uh, liposuction occurs around the you know the curvy parts of the body, you know the hips and um, maybe some of the flap that's left over to make the, the stomach as small as you can get it. 
We do put drains in for, you know, draining for seromas and things like that that can occur to prevent complications or infections. Uh, sometimes there's, there's wound problems. If people smoke cigarettes, you can't really smoke and, and not have complications. So these are all things that occur. But I can pretty much take a woman between the age of, you know, let's say 30, 35, that's when they start coming in, to 55, and, um, you know, make them look like they're dead when they're 21 again, which is kind of nice. Well, uh, yeah, I, I wanted to ask, what are the reasons why women uh, come to you and say, I want to make mommy makeover? Uh, you know, what, what would inspire a woman to do that? Well, you know, men are men, women are women. You know, men are from Mars or the other way around. But anyway, <laughs> women, they're like, they want to be on display and they want to look good. And they want when they wear clothes, they don't, they want things to be not sticking out or they have more projection, that sort of thing. They're natural models by nature, and that's the way nature has made them. So they just want to be pretty. And they, Am I pretty? Mm -hmm. Am I too heavy? You know, that's, that's how women are, and that's the way they should be. And after I fix them up, they feel more feminine, more confident. And uh, sometimes the husband gets jealous because they feel like they might be more attractive now, especially, <laughs> when I, especially when I do facelifts on a woman who's a little younger. And she looks better than the husband already. And I take <laughs> off 15 years, and the husband looks like the, the, the grandfather. You know, about uh, 15 years ago, uh, my longtime uh, office manager had a birthday, and she was feeling like uh, she wanted to, you know, have something done to make her look better. And uh, she needed, uh, you know, a little bit of a eye lift. And uh, I, as, as a pre Christmas present or some kind of present, I gave, I gave her... Uh, you know, I set her up with John to go over there, and I, I gave her uh, an eye lift for a gift. And John, uh, she was absolutely ecstatic about the way she looked and how she felt after that. That's amazing how just eye, eye lifts can you know take away age up to five to seven years because you can't really see your eyes that can hang over your pupils, and you can't see the color of your iris, and your your eyes might be one of the most attractive parts of your body, but yet. You can't see it because you have shades down, and this is a very simple operation. Can be done under local, and not only you know do you look better, but also you can see better. There's more light that comes in your eye, and uh, you know actually feel better about the whole thing. So just simple things like that can you know make your life better. You know, a simple operation that takes maybe a half an hour under local, just like going to the dentist. So you know, little things, big things, nip tuck, or you know all the way. But um, you have to be motivated to do it because. You know, it helps in the, in the you know, the recovering that sort of thing psychologically. Uh, rhinoplasties, young people can have rhinoplasties and they like it. Older people come in, they don't like their nose. And, they, and after 40, their personality is established and they have a little different effect on doing nose. You have to be careful with older people, although I do remember one girl came in, was 50. And I did her nose and her mother was 75 and she said, I always want my nose done. So she did it too, and they both liked it. So. <laughs> well, you know, if you live 75 years with a nose and you decide you want a new one, yeah. you know, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's quite a phenomenon. That's, that, yeah. yeah, but, I, okay, so when I was younger, and we're, John and I are very close in age, you know, uh, it was just starting where girls who were anywhere from, uh, you know, 16, 17, 18, you know, were starting to get, you know, nose jobs, uh, and then... More and more girls were getting, you know, uh, boob jobs. And um, tell us how that's transformed uh, over your career as far as the, you know, 
um, the the number of people seeking that in the age ranges? Well, in 1964, people, some plastic surgeons started experimenting on putting things under women's breasts to enhance the breast. It was pretty primitive at the start. I think they were using sponges of some sort, and you know things weren't going quite well. But interestingly, I, I, I did do an internship in Santa Barbara, California, and I met the, a guy at the pool, and his dad started Allergan, which is now Allergan, in the garage. So that's where the first silicone breast implants came in, uh, and just covered silicone. Again, it, everybody th was getting different problems, you know, health problems. They blamed it on silicone. Well, they did a study and found it wasn't true. It's probably more long-term viruses like Epstein-Barr virus. But anyway, from that point on, you know, the silicone saline came into play. They became more sophisticated. They were, they were more uh, durable, um, and they were used. Uh, and that, that opened the door to women to feel safe in doing it, and kind of an explosion in the um, 70s and 80s um, of breast implants for women. And initially, I started out with saline because that was... Cheaper and you know it, you know they saline. That's like salt water, right? Yeah, so you put salt water in, and you know it's it's a silicone shell, but it's you know empty. Whereas silicone has real silicone, has silicone plus silicone on the inside. That now is called gummy bears, which doesn't rupture at all. But in the old days, when I took out the old silicone, it would be like it would stick to my fingers like glue, and you had to kind of wipe it off your hands. It was pretty gory. And there's a lot of reaction inside, too, like scar tissue reaction that looked like chalk, you know, because it, it felt like chalk, looked like chalk. So that's so the body's reaction for inflammation. What's the current state as far as what's the state of the art right now for breast augmentation? Okay, breast aug right now, I mean, the silicone are very safe, and most people go for silicone because it's lighter than the water, uh, saline ones, and also less wrinkled, and, uh, of course, it, it won't rupture at all. And... In the old days, we, I went from on top of the muscle, then everybody said, oh, it's better under the muscle because you get less scar tissue, but then it's back to where you want to do it. Now, it's basically, if a woman comes in for mommy makeover and she's got a lot of loose skin, you, you like to give her the biggest implant you can to fill out the skin on top of the muscle so you can fill out the sagging better. Um, underneath the muscle is pretty much safe now for younger girls who you know, are pretty flat like a fried egg, but you need more cushion to cover up the implant. So I just use implants on younger people under the muscle for that reason, and that's about the only people I do it on now, which has gone back the way I started. So as everything else in life, you know, there's a 360, and what, you know, bow ties were narrow at one point, then they're thick, now they come back and, you know, it's narrow again. I mean, <laughs> everything comes back again, it seems like. Well, John, um, uh, can you tell folks uh, how they can get a hold of you uh, if they're interested in having a consultation? Yeah, I'm, I'm in Gainesville. Um, actually in the Newberry area of town of Tioga, and you can just simply, you know, Google Dr. John Poser, P-O-S-E-R. I also work at Recharge in Ocala and the Villages, if you're in that area. Um, I do surgery in the Villages down there about once a week, too, so people down in that area don't have to travel all the way to Gainesville. But I do have my own operating room, so you don't have to go to the hospital. It's all kind of like family surgery. Everybody I've worked with has been there 20 years, so... You feel like you're kind of going to your house having surgery. Um, I've been doing it since 1984, and um, you know I've seen the, I've seen everything that's happened over the years in plastic surgery. I kind of understand it and I enjoy it, and I've always liked operating. Uh, for me, it's kind of like working out. It's, I like my working with my hands, that sort of thing, and talking to people and 
trying to get them to be the best they can be at whatever age they can be. So um, just call me up, Dr. John Poser <clears throat> at poserplasticsurgery.com uh, in Gainesville or the villages under recharge. Well, uh, John, it's uh, been great having you on the show. Uh, we really appreciate some of your insights as to uh, the current state of what's going on in uh, plastic surgery. And I know you've helped a lot of uh, men and women uh, as far as uh, making them feel better, having higher self-esteem. And I want to thank you very much for being our guest on Meldon Law and Friends. All right. I'm a friend of Meldon Law. <laughs> <laughs> All right. 